tap into your most original thinking, organize your ideas, and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Well, welcome back, friends, to our podcast, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, where we talk about how we get original thinking and how we organize those ideas, but most of all, how we gain the connections and confidence to launch our work out into the world. And I'm so glad to have as my guest today, author, thinker, philosopher, Ken Dykewald. Great to be with you, Mark. Ken has really made a vocation out of thinking ahead about how we're going to age and how that aging process will look. But his latest book, Radical Curiosity, also looks inside his own search for a purposeful life. And I can't wait to cover all that with you, Ken. Well, I can't help but start with the title of the book, Ken, Radical Curiosity. Not just I wonder what if, but thinking about that in a radical way. What did that title mean to you? Well, what I noticed, you know, I've I've been sort of going at the writing and speaking and consulting thing now for 50 years. And I noticed that there's a lot of attention focused on success, you know, seven habits of highly successful people, on abundance, on, you know, fortitude. And I, and I thought, you know, I think they're missing the point a lot. I, I think that a lot of what drives innovation is curiosity. And a lot of people, if you bring up curiosity to them, they're thinking it means what's playing on TV tonight, or I can look something up on YouTube that I'm not so sure about. And what I was trying to suggest in the book that there is a deeper dive to be taken, you know, like what happens after we die kind of curiosity? How do we reinvent the world kind of curiosity? Who can we be when we're 70 curiosity? And I know that a lot of people are pretty jacked up about artificial intelligence, as am I. But I become really captivated by what I call II, imagination intelligence. And I don't think it's taught in the schools. I don't think we necessarily encourage it. And unfortunately, I think being able to Google everything has made us a little bit kind of lazy. We don't necessarily know how to seek out creative thinkers. We don't really know how to bang around inside our minds. What's a new idea? What's a better way to say something? What hasn't been thought about before? I tried to imply with the title that curiosity, first of all, matters. And it ought to be up there in our schools, in our companies, in our families as something we emphasize is important. Mm -hmm. Well, and I've read some other reviews that have said, and I observed this too, that this wasn't just an autobiography, you know, sort of the relations of your life, but also it doesn't come across as that how to think, as you said, you know, experts on creativity have written a lot of these six point, the seven ways and all these kinds of books, but there's a lot of how to in your stories threaded through your memoir reflections is uh, how you thought about things then and maybe how you reflect on them now. Well, thanks for asking. You know, first of all, I'm a fan of books that like here's the five, you know, the 10 commandments (laughs) or the five habits of, or the six things that successful people do. I read those books, but what I try to dig around in is okay. I've been alive since 1950. I've managed to work with some of the most extraordinary leaders, presidents, creators, been an advisor to half the Fortune 500. So like, what have I learned? And, and there's a couple of three things, Mark, if, if I might, that I can share 
with your viewers and listeners. Um, first of all, uh, don't accept the status quo. I'll give you an example. Um, years ago, I was having dinner with the woman who is the head of the Grey Panthers. She was called America's Wrinkled Radical, Maggie Kuhn. And at dinner, she said to me, you know, we don't have a good word to, to characterize caring for older people. Right now, the only two ways we talk about it is either long-term care or geriatric medicine. So she said to me, make up a new word. I said, what, what do you mean make up a new word? Word to word. She says, no, make up a new word. And I says, okay, how much time you give me to do that? Till tomorrow morning at breakfast. So I was up all night and I came back. I said, elder care. And uh, she said, I love it. And I gave a speech about elder care. And next thing I knew, I wrote two books about it. And it's now a word people use all the time. Right. I made up the phrase holistic health, which people think was somehow, you know, chiseled by our ancestors on a rock somewhere, uh, calling something an age wave. I made up the phrase healthy aging, that somehow when you can kind of come up with a new way of stating something and it works its way into the master narrative, you can reshape things that people think. For example, my very first book, uh, I named Body Mind. And the publisher said, well, those are two words, so it should be body and mind. I said, no, I want the title to be Body Mind, which makes a point that they're connected. And they really battled me on that. Their compliance department, legal department, you can't make up words. And I said, well, who said you can't make up words? <laughs> so, so let me use that as a simple example. Don't accept the status quo. You may have a thought or an idea. Um, you know, I was having dinner with Tim Berners-Lee in Davos, Switzerland, the night before the World Wide Web was revealed to the crowd there. And, you know, the internet was something nobody had really the public, we hadn't really imagined that. We didn't wake up each day and wish that there was something like that, you know, but that came out of DARPA and Tim dreamed it up with a group of other people. And it's, by the way, I've watched him over the decades and I was with him that night at dinner. And did he think it was going to become sort of the number one porn site or travel bureau or a way to kind of give misinformation? Never crossed his mind. Tim was a very... Uh, honest, altruistic, high-minded fellow. And so sometimes when you unleash something into the world, uh, someone's going to populate it with ideas or practices that are not what you thought of. Let me give you one other, one last example on this. Uh, and then I want to make one other point. But when I was a kid, when I was like 30, I was speaking at a conference in Chicago, and one of the other speakers was this luminary Buckminster Fuller. And I went to the dining room you know, of the hotel at dinner and by myself, and I saw a few tables away there he was eating dinner by himself. And I thought, hey, how often am I going to get a chance to maybe say hi to Bucky Fuller? That's so right. I went over to his table. I said, Mr. Fuller, would you mind? You know, you're the creator of geodesic domes and a whole way of thinking about the earth. And could I join you? And he wanted, he said, you can join me only if you tell me your favorite science fiction story. I thought, wow, what an interesting guy right there. You know, how many people ask that as a requirement to be a dinner companion? Yes. I told him about the Sound of Distant Thunder, the Asimov story about the butterfly effect, which he was aware of, but he wanted to hear my take on it. But then I said to him, so like, what's your deal? What do you see yourself doing in this life? And he didn't even hesitate. He said to me, uh, I'm a trim tab. I'm a human trim tab. I said, I have no idea what that is. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. 
He said, do you fly or sail? I said, no. He says, a trim tab is a rudder on a plane or a boat that steers in turbulence. I'm a human trim tab. I steer societies in times of turbulence. I said, wow, how cool to even think like that. And, but then he said to me, Mark, he said, all right, Ken, what are you? I said, I don't know. He said, you got to tell me something. And I said, all right, I work in this aging field. I'm young at it, but I'm a trim t- I'm this, I'm the, uh, I'm the guy at the railroad tracks that, you know, pulls the switch. I'm a switchman because the train, if it's heading in the wrong direction, you got to pull that switch in order to get the train going in the right direction. And you know what? That has not left my mind for one minute in all these decades. So I guess part of the point to that story is you got to know a little bit about what you're trying to make happen in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, what is your role? What is it that you as a creator or as an innovator or a solver are trying to get to happen? And then, you know, double and triple down on it. And I, I do want to say that one thing that I've been lucky with that I picked a subject that was very unpopulated by talent. You know, if I were to say to you, I want to be creating computer games for 14 year old teenage boys, I'd be up against thousands of others. There's there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of talent (laughs) over there, you know? So I decided I was going to be the guy that helped dream up what are the products and services and ideas that would be needed in a world where there'd be increasing longevity and more and more older people, and they would be different kind of older people than our grandparents. And I looked around and there was almost nobody else doing that. And I thought, not a bad place to play because I can really maybe stand out. And that that's something that I don't ever talk about, but it did cross my mind that I there is value in not picking a territory that's massively occupied by mm-hmm. lots of other talent, picking an area that you can really make an impact and stand apart. Yes. Well, and certainly these themes and topics have evolved over the years. And we were, we were stating that uh, I first became aware of your work in the mid-90s. And I know I had a bigger, longer, browner set of hair. Um, I can't uh, speak for you 40 years ago, but... <laughs> I, I do recall that now we are in the demographic that we were projecting, you know, what would be this healthy aging process. As you look back on that, and I guess even, you know, where we stand now, what are some of your thoughts? Well, how it came about for me, I initially went to school to be a physicist. And then it was the late 1960s. And I wandered into a course that was called the psychology of human potential. And it seemed at first odd to me, the very first textbook in the course was the varieties of the psychedelic experience. And I thought, you know, I know that's all popular now with microdosing and such, but this was 1969. And I, you know, this is, I was clueless. Mm-hmm. But as the, as the course unfolded, the idea of the course kind of blew me away. The idea that humans had extraordinary potentials, whether it be to be artists, to be sexually gifted, to be brilliant, to be creative, to be imaginative, to be kind, to be loving. We had all these potentials and by and large, we're only scratching the surface using about 5% of our potentials. And I thought, man, that's the most interesting thing I ever heard. So long and short, and to make my parents very nervous, I quit college and moved to Big Sur, California, where the Esalen Institute was 
because that's where the action was. That's where the philosophers and the psychologists, kind of like earlier on, the left bank of Paris was a breeding ground for great writers. Big Sir and Eslin was sort of the breeding ground for pioneering and innovative thinkers, whether it was Tim Leary or Ram Dass or Alan Watts or Michael Murphy or Fritz Perls. I mean, all these kind of characters, they were all gathering to try to rub up against each other and learn new things. And I, um, I've spent my life, although working in the field of aging, it's always been with a part of me believing what could we become. Many people looked at aging from the, oh, what a terrible thing, bunch of geezers coming down the highway. And I more saw what an interesting thing that's happening. Throughout 99% of human history, the average life expectancy at birth was under 18. Mm-hmm. So there have always been some old people, but not many. And so old was rare, and most people died young. And I, as I looked at the demography, and I looked at the medical breakthroughs coming, and I looked at the baby boomer generation and its path, it struck me that in the 21st century, where we are now, we would begin to shift for being a youth-dominated culture to a middle-aged and then elder culture. And that had never happened before on planet Earth. And so I thought, that's going to need some maps. You know, we're going to need to think about that. We're going to need to probe it, to envision it, to imagine it. And I've had, I've been a very lucky guy. I've been been on that beat now for a long time. But I do want to say for your, for your audience that, you know, I've written 19 books and people think, oh, you write a book, you must know something. The most interesting thing about publishing a book is all the people after the book that tell you what you didn't know. And you can either get defensive and say, how dare you? Or I would always say, all right, fill me in. You know, for example, my last book was, one of my last books was What Retirees Want. And uh, it was meant to be sort of the number one book in the world on what it is in terms of housing and healthcare and media and and travel that the old the new older adult population was craving and a woman called me up she says i'm an expert on solo agers and you didn't really cover solo aging very well and i think you don't she said to me i don't think you don't you understand us i said can you teach me and she did and that happens like hundreds of times when you put something out people are going to want it either because they're obnoxious or they're wise or both, they want to tell you what you don't know. Mm-hmm. But then if they teach you, then you know it. So well, you can continue isn't that learning. part of that curiosity that we've been yeah, talking you can about? Continue right? learning from putting out your ideas, but then being willing to shake the tree and get some more insights along the way. Yeah, well, and that's at all levels of your uh, clients and those that you've uh, associated with. I mean, right on the cover of the book, a quote from uh, one of my favorite people in the world, President Jimmy Carter. Here he is, uh, 98, but he said, you know, here's Ken Dykewald, a thinker and an original innovator in this important subject of aging. He, he was writing his own book, The Virtues of Aging. I, and, I, I'll give you the backgrounder on that. Yes. So. I was in, it was a terribly obnoxious thing that I did. I was asked to speak at a mental health conference that Rosalind Carter was putting on decades ago, and they had no fee. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll come to Georgia and do this talk if I can have dinner with Mrs. and President Carter. And at first they were like, 
shocked that somebody yeah, would that's ask an audacious yeah. <laughs> question. And then they got back to me and said they'd love to. So long and short of it was I developed a connection with the Carters. And President Carter said to me that he wanted to write a book about his own philosophy of aging. Would I be his mentor? Now, I was like, you know, 40 something and he was, you know, a wise elder. And I said, what can I teach you? He says, I don't know, but can you come to Georgia every few weeks and we'll sit and talk? And and no kidding, Mark, he had read all of my books. You know, I take meetings with people who may want to work for me or and they don't do any homework. They just think they're sure. too cool. And here was President Carter had read my books and he had a notepad the first meeting. And he says, I'm here to learn from you. And I'm like. I cannot believe it because first of all he's extremely smart and second of all he's extremely inquisitive and i've met other presidents that are not inquisitive you know they think they know everything and over the course of that year what what emerged for him was this book virtues of aging and i uh what an honor for me you know he mentions me in his acknowledgments as being his sort of guide but to be in the presence of truly inquisitive and creative minds who are continually trying to learn is valuable because we live in a society today where you turn on the news, whatever persuasion you have, you get the feeling that everybody talking thinks they already know everything about everything. They're not inquisitive. They're just trying to catch you. They're just trying to make their point. To be around inquisitive, curious, people who want to learn, who want to grow is inspiring. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, let's talk about another aspect of the book. And that is there's a thread of a personal and family uh, story throughout and the, the development of the relationships with your sons. Um, how, how was this part of your radical curiosity and, and the search, as you say, for purpose? First of all, you know, I've never been asked these these particular questions before, so it, this is kind of a fun little Zen exercise for me. So when I was maybe, I don't know, 40, I landed on the cover of Inc. magazine. So this would be like 1980. And it was before the Internet, so it wasn't a matter of emailing people. But I started getting letters from other Inc. cover guys and gals. It was like a club. And um, we started conferring with each other and sharing ideas. and. One of the things I noticed is that a lot of these great successful people had really sad personal lives. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your wife. I've been married six times. Tell me about your kids. My son is an alcoholic. Tell me about, and I thought, oh, I felt so bad. And I thought, wow, in America, we sort of make heroic business success, even if your life is not so great. And I decided early on that I didn't want to be that. So I have placed a lot of emphasis in my life on my relationship with my wife, whom I remarry every year. We've been married 39 times in 39 different locations with Wonderful. 39 religions and with each of my kids who um, are kind of colorful, adventurous souls. But uh, even when they were teenagers, I would do one on one trips with each of them each year, someplace they wanted to go, whether it was rafting the Grand Canyon or seeing shows in Paris or just camping. And so I have attempted to invest in processes and dynamics whereby my relationship within my family were nourishing and I was present. 
where I know that my dad was just busy working all the time and he wasn't very active a dad. And, and I know that a lot of other people who were seeking, making a lot of money or being successful, they pushed to the side of their family. And I'd like to say, and what I tried to say in that book, Radical Curiosity, was that it's kind of balancing it, you know? It's a balancing act. And it's not a bad idea to have role models. And I don't have very many. Mm-hmm. You know, we... What do we know about name anybody? And, you know, and do we want to be like them because what they made a billion dollars or do we want to be like them because what they're happy mm-hmm. and, or because people love them. And I'll give you one anecdote. One of my mentors, and there's a chapter about him in the book was a gentleman named Houston Smith. Houston was considered the world's leading religious scholar. He was a practicing Christian, Buddhist and Hindu. He was head of the religious studies department at MIT. When I got to know him, he was in his 90s, and I was asked to do his final interview before he passed. And I asked him, I said, Houston, there is no one who has studied religion more deeply on earth than you have. By the way, he was the advisor to the Dalai Lama and the Pope. And I said to him, is there any lesson you've learned by living these 90 plus years about how to live a more fulfilled life? And I thought some theory was going to come out about meditation or about spiritual practice or about going to get your graduate degrees. And he said, Ken, for all of us, be a little kinder. And I thought, you know, we don't see that on the cover of the magazines when when the executives are being hailed for their success. Not that much. Be a little kinder is what matters to them. And so... What I tried to share in Radical Curiosity is having the benefit of, of knowing Tim Leary or knowing Jimmy Carter or knowing Bill Clinton or knowing, you know, what lessons that I learned, both good and bad, about how to live a life that's not only filled with curiosity and innovation and maybe some success, but also with nourishment from um, people who you love and who love you back. Mm-hmm. Well, Ken... The 19 books we've talked about, all the work on Age Wave over the years. Look now over the horizon. You know, are there still burning topics or burning subjects that you still want to research? And maybe there's the 20th and 21st book, you know, already brewing. But uh, what what do you see as far as your next uh, curious topic? Well, I'm going to answer this by hitting it two shots on the goal. One of them is, is that I, you know, as an innovator wannabe in the aging gerontology, longevity medicine fields, you think the people I would study with are people in those fields. But I used to go to Prince concerts because I want to see the way he worked the audience. You know, I go to Stones concerts because I want to see. If you like this podcast, here's another show that you'll like from BSB Media. The Patients Speak, Healthcare Innovations Accelerating the Patient Journey. It features interviews with healthcare leaders, patient advocates, medical providers, and researchers. Presented by 83 Bar. Look for The Patients Speak on your favorite podcast app.